Artemis 1, ready for launch. You're listening to Are We There Yet, the radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. In less than a week, NASA plans to launch its Artemis 1 mission on an uncrewed flight around the moon and back. It's the first time NASA is launching a space capsule designed to take humans to the moon since the Apollo program, which aimed to beat the Soviets to the lunar surface in the 1960s. But this mission is much different than NASA's last moonshot. The whole tenor of the mission is, it's really kind of flip-flop from what we see in the 1960s. You know, science was secondary with Apollo and it is primary with Artemis. We'll revisit the historical context of NASA's previous moon mission and explore what makes this new mission so different. Then, the Artemis program faces criticism for being behind schedule and over budget. Is it worth it? That's ahead on Are We There Yet? from 90.7 WMFE News. On Monday, NASA plans to launch its Artemis 1 mission from the Kennedy Space Center. The SLS rocket is carrying the Orion space capsule, the first vehicle designed to take humans to the moon since the Apollo days. This next chapter in moon history is called Artemis, aptly named. In Greek mythology, Artemis was the goddess of the moon and twin sister of Apollo. But these two programs are very different. To talk more about the historical context of NASA's moon missions and what sets them apart is Amy Foster, a professor of history at the University of Central Florida, focusing on U.S. space history. Amy, welcome back to the program. Thank you very much for having me. So, Professor, in, in mythology, Artemis is the twin sister of Apollo. In reality, these are very different programs. Um, what jumps out at you as some of the biggest differences between the Apollo of the 1960s and 1970s and the Artemis of today? Well, I think the biggest difference is the Apollo program was very much about the race with the Soviets. You know, this was um, an element of the Cold War. Uh, President Kennedy made the decision to go to the moon, not because he thought we had a greater purpose in space, but he needed a political win. Um, the Bay of Pigs fiasco had just happened and and Kennedy was was looking for anything that could kind of reinvigorate his position and the American people. And we had we had been behind in the space race against the Soviets pretty much since the beginning. They had put up the first satellite in space. They put the first man in space. They put the first man in orbit. Then they're going to put the first woman in orbit, first space station in orbit. You know, so it it was it was already looking um, pretty frustrating, I think, for the American people. And that's really what what Kennedy um, took advantage of uh, with the space program is 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 in sitting down with the NASA administrator, James Webb, Webb said, I think we can beat the Soviets to the moon. And so that's really what Apollo was about from from a, an outward standing perspective. Now, NASA understood we're going to the moon. We have to make it purposeful beyond just the political because NASA was founded as a scientific organization. Um, that's how President Eisenhower created it. And so, you know, we aren't we weren't just going to send people to the moon and say, hey, plant a flag and come on home. You know, it was about collecting lunar samples for study um, as much as anything. But I think for 
for the astronauts and for NASA, they understood that part um, and they they emphasized that. So so making you know lunar sample collection and observation and you know planting geological survey equipment uh, was a big part of what NASA was doing on the moon. Um, but you know the outward side was very political. Artemis really is about the science. We aren't in the midst of a space race um, as much as the Chinese would like us to engage in one. Um, we aren't. Um, this, this, the whole mission is designed to return us to the moon, gather more scientific data uh, samples, but also to learn how to live in space in a way that, you know, what we've been doing on the International Space Station in low Earth orbit can't do. The idea for the, the next step is to go to Mars. And so being able to, to colonize uh, in space is, you know, a big part of what Artemis is going to be about. It's not just going to the moon and collecting samples anymore. It is about learning to live there. Um, and that's just the whole, the whole tenor of the mission is it's really kind of flip-flop from what we see in the 1960s. You know, science yeah. was secondary with Apollo and it is primary with Artemis. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that because of the geopolitical background during the Apollo program, you know, Kennedy needed to win and, and this was his win. Um, who stands to win with, with Artemis? I mean, this is a program that has transcended presidential administrations. There really is no one person we can say made this happen. So is there even a political winner with Artemis or, or does somebody else win? You know, NASA certainly isn't pushing a political agenda in this one. Um, and it's, I think one of the things that, that we, we can look back at Apollo is that it was, it was a global event, no matter what, uh, you know, it was something that people around the world watched. They watched Neil Armstrong's first steps on the moon. Uh, and it was in that sense, it, it very, it was very much, um, an achievement for humankind. And so I think, you know, because there is no political attachment to Artemis, what we learn on the moon with this go around is something that definitely is going to have global ramifications. One one of the things that, that NASA has always been very open about is their program. You know, what are we doing? How can what we learn help mankind, humankind as a, as a whole? And so I think what... The, the lessons that we learned from Artemis are going to be something that that definitely transcends just the United States and is going to have, you know, Im impacts around the world. And I think one of the things that that, you know, NASA has always done is every time they're developing something and learning something new, you know, that's scientific knowledge that that they publish that they release. And then even some of the technologies that they develop are things that trickle down into, you know, everyday life. And one of the things that, you know, we don't think about is, is medical equipment. You know, a lot of the sensors that were used to track the, the physiological changes that astronauts were experiencing during launch and landing, all of those biosensors that we think about now that, you know, they put on you when you go into the emergency room or when you have surgery or an EKG. Those are all trickle down technologies from those biosensors developed by NASA during the Mercury program. What we learned from Artemis, we're honestly not even going to know 
really how much we benefit from the knowledge that we're going to gain from Artemis because it's it's NASA simply going to put it out there and the, the world is going to be able to take advantage of it. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. I'm Brendan Byrne. We're speaking with Amy Foster, an associate professor of history at the University of Central Florida. Um, Amy, the, the Artemis missions aim to land the first woman and first person of color on the moon. Your research looks at, and, and you've written extensively about NASA's efforts to integrate women into the astronaut corps. I'm wondering what do you think some of the first women to join NASA's astronauts might think of of this goal and this moment that we're entering in now? I, I think they're going to be excited by it. You know, I think when we when we look at the first six women who entered the astronaut corps in 1978, uh, they understood their role as as trailblazers um, and breaking down barriers. And and even amongst themselves, they they understood that they were setting precedents as well. When, when Sally Ride was assigned to her first flight to be the first American woman in space, she went to the other five women and said, you know, these are kind of the, the things that I plan to do on this mission. This is the checklist that I'm planning to use when I, you know, use the remote manipular, manipulator arm. Do these make sense to you? Because she understood that everything she did was going to be judged. Um, and she wanted to make sure that what she did was something that the, the other six women were okay with because she understood that that was going to matter long term. I think for them, they understand the role of those firsts. Um, but I also know they don't see this as tokenism. You know, when we look at, at the astronaut corps now, there are plenty of women in it. In fact, the last three classes that have been selected, it's almost 50%. The the class three classes ago was exactly 50%. And now it's, it's been almost parody. We, you know, with the second to last class, it was uh, 11 people selected were selected. Five of them were women. This last class, 10 people were selected, four were women. And that's as much a reflection of, of how much uh, access has changed for women into getting graduate degrees in the sciences and jobs in the sciences and engineering and, and medicine, um, as well as women getting access to advanced pilot training in the military. You know, so what we see in in terms of the astronaut corps is something that is much more heterogeneous, much more diverse, both in terms of, of, of sex, but also color. And, and so putting, you know, a woman on the moon and the first person of the color on the moon, it is, it, it's not, it's not political and it's not tokenism. It is simply a reflection of what the astronaut corps now is. Um, but I, I know that those, those first women saw themselves as important, you know, we call them kind of, um, entering wedges into a field, kind of opening that door just a little bit to create opportunity. And so I, I hope they see this as, um, you know, part of their legacy, but I, I think they're going to be as excited and proud and I don't know, perhaps even a little bit jealous that, that somebody else gets to land on the moon. And, and finally, Amy, the Apollo 11 landings is, as you alluded to earlier in our conversation, I mean, it captivated a nation in the late 1960s, but you know, after those first landings, public interest and eventually funding for Apollo fell off. Um, do you think Artemis might face the same fate? I think there's, there's always the possibility that NASA's budget will get cut. But I think the, the big difference that we see between Apollo and 
you know, how NASA has um, been able to develop Artemis is during the Apollo program, because it had such political emphasis, the portion of the federal budget that NASA got in the 1960s was considerably more than what they get now. So I think the, the, the proportion of the federal budget that NASA got when it got its most percentage, um, it got six and a half percent of the federal budget in 1966. And then it started to drop off. Um, and so by the time we landed on the moon, it, it dropped down pretty precipitously down to about one half of 1% of the federal budget. But NASA's budget is still about one half of 1% of the federal budget. So, you know, it's it's gone up a little bit here and there. You know, it's it's flirted with 1% of the federal budget, but it's it's been pretty stable for pretty close to 50 years. Um, so while there's always talk about cutting NASA's budget, there's not much left to cut. And so while there, I'm sure there will continue to be uh, noise about this is so much money that we spend when there are bigger problems here, you know, on the ground, and that's always going to be the case. Um, I, I don't see NASA's funding being on the chopping block in quite the same way it was after the Apollo 11 landing. Like I say, there's just not that much left to cut. So we've been speaking with Amy Foster. She's an associate professor of history at the University of Central Florida. Her research focuses on U.S. space history, and she's the author of the book Integrating Women into the Astronaut Corps, Politics and Logistics at NASA, 1972 to 2004. Amy, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, Brennan. Still to come, the program is behind schedule and over budget. So is it worth it? A conversation with space policy analyst Laura Forsick about the cost of Artemis and the anticipated return for the U.S. space program. Are We There Yet is back in a minute here on 90.7 WMFE News. You're listening to Are We There Yet? from 90.7 WMFE News. I'm Brendan Byrne. The Artemis program has faced criticism for being behind schedule and over budget, but it promises to give us a better understanding of our moon, serve as a deep space pit stop for future missions, and inspire the next generation of space explorers. But is it worth the cost? To talk more about the scrutiny of Artemis and the potential return on investment, we're joined by Laura Forsick, a space policy analyst and founder of the consulting firm Astrolytical. Laura, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me on again. So we've got... The launch is less than a week away. This this moment seems like it 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 was never going to happen, <laughs> but here it is. Um, Laura, take us back. How did how did we get to this moment? Where did the Artemis program originate from? Arguably, it originated as far back as Apollo, because we had been wanting a program that takes us back to the moon and then keeps us going on a path to Mars. And this concept has been thrown around since the Apollo days. It has been um, initiated under the George H.W. Bush and the George Bush administrations, and then finally took root under the uh, Obama at the end of Obama administration and the beginning of the Trump administration is where Artemis really solidified. And it's a different type of program than what we have seen throughout NASA history in that it significantly relies on both international partnerships and commercial partnerships. So it is quite a bit different from Apollo. Mm -hmm. And it, it seemed worth with Apollo was a charge by President Kennedy. This is something that has extended across 
presidential administrations, does that add to the complexity of the program? Yes, that's right. In fact, I don't believe that the Biden administration has changed anything about the Artemis program. Um, We have seen the date slip. So originally, the lunar landing, um, Artemis 3, landing humans were back on the the surface of the moon, was scheduled for 2028. Under the Trump administration, that got changed to 2024. And now we're aiming for about 2025, with a likelihood of slipping a little bit further. (laughs) So, But that's really the only change we've seen from administration to administration. This is um, a mission that has been long delayed over budget. Let's talk a bit about the criticism of of the program. What are some of the the, the major concerns for people that take a critical look at, at the Artemis program? One of the major concerns is, is it going to be financially sustainable? Is the U.S. taxpayer going to agree with a program that continues to spend a large amount of money on landing people to the surface of the moon, which, you know, for a casual listener, we've done that before, right? But the difference here is that Artemis is meant to be sustainable in the sense that we are meant to have a long-term human presence on the surface, whether that is a permanent presence, a continuous presence, or just continuous access. Depends on your point of view. Also, maybe economic sustainability is as well, bringing in the commercial industry so that they can find ways to extend a marketplace to cislunar and lunar space. Um, and so the big criticism is, okay, is it going to be financially sustainable, politically sustainable, long enough for that to occur? And we just don't know because we have these huge rocket, this huge rocket called SLS, this capsule on top called Orion, and then a number of other large programs such as the Lunar Gateway and some other aspects of this program that are very very, very expensive. So we have yet to see how the U.S. taxpayers and the politicians who fund these programs are going to react, both when we get back to the surface of the moon and also when we try to stay there long term. Mm-hmm. Does, does it help that this mission is framed as less of a plant a flag and call it a day and more of that kind of sustained scientific presence on the moon that will get us to other places? In, in other words, Does the American public care (laughs) about those goals of the Artemis program? Well, I'm an American and I care. And I very much hope that Americans listening to this recording can find a way to realize that they too can benefit from this, whether it is better understanding where we come from and our place in our solar system and our universe. Or it could be just the fact that we are explorers and we want to go beyond no matter where that is, whether that's Antarctica or the deep ocean or beyond our Earth, beyond our home planet. Or perhaps you have some kind of practice understanding of mining the surface of the moon and what resources we could mine. Or maybe you want to go on to the rest of the solar system, the you know Mars and asteroids and all the really great planets and planetary bodies out there. I mean, there's just a lot to appreciate about returning to the surface of the moon. And, you know, whether or not the general public understands or appreciates that, I do believe it is worthwhile for the U.S. government to be putting their uh, their funding towards programs that are for science, you know, for for doing this innovative breaking ground that we lead the rest of the world. I mean, there's, we are leading the world in not only the Artemis program, but something called the Artemis Accords, which is a diplomacy mechanism which helps U.S. maintain in leadership internationally. Mm-hmm. Laura, I was going to ask you about that because you did mention earlier in the conversation that one of the big differences between Apollo and Artemis is we're not going at this alone. This, there's international partnerships. You mentioned the the Artemis Accord, but I mean, how, how else are international partners joining the U.S. 
uh, for these Artemis missions. There are a number of countries signed on for the Lunar Gateway. It's a small space station around the moon um, that is being built both um, by the United States and also with international partners, sort of like the International Space Station, but a little smaller. There's also going to be a Canadian astronaut who joins NASA astronauts on Artemis II, which is a mission to go around the moon, circumlunar. We should also anticipate that there will be international astronauts joining crews in you know later Artemis missions as well, probably not Artemis III, but it is an international program, and therefore we should expect an international crew. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. I'm Brendan Byrne. I'm speaking with Laura Forsick. She's a space policy analyst and founder of the consulting firm Astrolytical. Laura, you mentioned that that another difference between between this and the Apollo is that we're going to be relying on commercial partners a lot more than, than we had in the past. Um, talk a little bit about the role that these commercial companies are playing in Artemis. You mentioned Gateway. There will be commercial partnerships there, but how else is NASA leveraging the commercial sector for this next chapter in lunar history? Yes. Older listeners might remember that during Apollo, NASA did contract with commercial companies to build hardware and to, to do a lot of the science and missions that we saw under Apollo. And it's slightly different this time where, yes, we do have contractors that NASA is using to build, for example, SLS and Orion. But we also have NASA buying services from the commercial space industry, not owning all the hardware, not doing all of the operations, but instead buying a service. For example, NASA has contracted several smaller landers with scientific payloads on them, with also room for commercial payloads, for commercial companies to then bring payloads to the surface of the moon um, that could be science missions, they could be commercial missions. There is also one contract in place for what's called the Human Landing System. If you might remember during Apollo, that was called the LEM, the Lunar Module. Well, now instead of NASA building that hardware, NASA has contracted SpaceX and will probably contract a second commercial company to build the hardware that will land astronauts to the surface of the moon and then bring them back up again. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about that Human Landing System. Um, what is SpaceX proposing and where are we in the development of that? And could it be ready in time? SpaceX is developing their heavy lift vehicles, super heavy lift vehicles called Starship. And they are going to modify Starship for this lunar lander. Um, how far along they are in the process, I don't really know because they are not terribly open about that right now, but they are continuing that. It was a little delayed because of some lawsuits that happened uh, earlier in the program history, but now that is moving forward. And that is a long tentpole, unfortunately. That is where a lot of the delays are going to come from. Spacesuits is another area where NASA is contracting out to commercial companies. NASA was developing their own spacesuits. And remember, we need not only replacement spacesuits for the International Space Station, we also need a different type of spacesuit for doing spacewalks on the surface of the moon, where there's all that regolith, that dusty environment on the surface of the moon. Um, and that is also an area that is long delayed. So between the human landing system and the spacesuits and some of the other technical hardware delays, we are definitely going to see, um, you know, it's going to be hard to accomplish the goal of landing humans on the moon by 2025. All of those elements are needed for the future missions, for Artemis II, for Artemis III and beyond. But talk a little bit about Artemis I. That's what's launching in, in hopefully less than a week. Um, what are the goals and, and what will NASA be watching for on this mission that will help with Artemis 2, 3, 
et cetera, et cetera. Artemis One has been so uh, such a long time coming that it's it's almost hard to believe that it's actually here. This is going to be the major test of the Space Launch System, the SLS, and the Orion capsule. On board, there are some mannequins called moonikins that are um, going to be testing radiation environment, for example. There's also a number of CubeSats. Those are small satellites that are going to be doing scientific uh, missions as well, looking at the lunar environment, the cislunar environment, so we can understand what it is that the astronauts who are going to be aboard Artemis II are going to undertake. We have a history of going to the moon under Apollo, but that was back in the 1960s and 70s. So we need a better understanding of what if we go longer term? What if we have people on board this gateway space station around the moon? What if we're staying on the moon for two weeks at a time rather than just a couple of days? So we have a lot to learn about living and working in the cislunar and lunar environment. Mm-hmm. And finally, Laura, we had the Apollo generation that was inspired by the landings um, in the 1960s and the early 1970s. Uh, but it's been a long time since we've had something like that. Artemis, could it inspire a new generation? I know you and I weren't alive for the uh, Apollo missions. What kind of impact is this going to have on future explorers, future scientists, future engineers? Absolutely. I hope it inspires people around the world. Um, So there was only a certain type of person who was allowed to be a NASA astronaut during the Apollo era. We are now going to be sending women. We're going to have the first woman set foot on the surface of the moon. People of color, people of different ethnicities, people, you know, Canadians going to go around on Artemis too, you know, different international crews. So it'll be more representative of humanity when we go back. Uh, So so what will that, what will that mean for, for, the people that will be watching this from Earth, what do you hope that they take away from this, Laura? I hope they recognize that Earth is just our home planet, but it's not where we're confined to be. We have so much more to go outside to explore the nature around us and that our planet is just um, the the body where we start from. We can extend from there. Um, and that we have so much more to explore and discover about our home solar system, our, our, our universe. And this is an area where anybody can get involved. It's not just scientists and engineers. It's also communicators like you and educators, like a lot of the listeners here. Um, and it could also be people who are, are in business or finance or people who know how to sew up spacesuits because that's still done by hand. You know, there's just a room for anybody to get involved, no matter who you are. We've been speaking with Laura Forsick. She's a space policy analyst and founder of the consulting firm Astrolytical. Laura, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's going to do it for this week's show. Stay listening. Next week, we'll hear from a NASA engineer and a planetary scientist about how Artemis One is shaping the next chapter of lunar exploration and what scientists might learn from future human missions to the surface. We'll also explore the economic impacts of the Artemis program from government funding to commercial development. Be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed. Do that on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, or you can visit wmfe.org slash yet. Are We There Yet? is a production of 90.7 WMFE News. Editorial guidance this week from LaToya Dennis. More coverage of the Artemis mission and everything else happening in space is on our website. Visit WMFE.org space. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening. 